Hey, good morning, and welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning in person at 10.30 a.m. We also meet throughout the week in small groups, both online and in person, and you just have to email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. As far as what's going on around the church, in addition to our normal collection of food for the Wichita Family Center, we are also collecting toys for boys and girls uh, up to like age 13 or 14 uh, for the Toy and Joy program, which is for children, underserved, underprivileged children in our community. It's run by retired firefighters, and uh, we, we love being able to partner with them. Also, uh, Christmas Sunday will be December 19th. That's the Sunday before Christmas. So that morning, we have our Christmas Sunday service. It's a lot of fun. It's upbeat. It's my shortest sermon of the year. Uh, it, we have a good time. Then that night, Christmas Sunday night, we will have our carol and communion service. And I've got the camera pulled back a little bit. As you can see, we've got the trees up on the stage. Uh, if, if I were to turn the camera around, you'd see the whole sanctuary is decorated for Christmas. And it, it really is a fun time on that carol and communion service. We turn all the lights down, and, and it's just kind of lit by the light of the Christmas trees. And, and it's, it's really a cool moment. Um, so those are things to put on your calendar. And something that we added last year that I think has really become something I look forward to is our Christmas podcast. And that releases on Christmas Eve. Of course, you can watch or listen to it whenever. But that'll be available the same place that this is available. Our podcasts in audio format are available on Spotify and Apple Music. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And our video versions are live streamed on our website, faithonhill.com. And on our Facebook page, uh, and you just have to search Faith on Hill on Facebook, you actually don't have to have a Facebook account to watch our online services there. And the videos are always available on our Facebook page if you miss something. So that's what's going on around here. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to finish up. We're going to talk about Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, and how he lived in real obedience. Let's study God's Word together. Well, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, and that means exactly what you think it means, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. This is because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. 
This is God's word. Some people think that worship is when the church gathers together in song, and that's definitely part of it. Worship happens all throughout the week as we live our lives. Worship happens as we gather together, as we pray together, as we study God's word together. That is an act of worship, to submit ourselves and say, God, this is your word to me. It is authoritative. It is powerful. It is life-changing, and I submit my life to its authority. So what is it saying to us this morning? Okay, so Matthew says this is how the birth of Jesus came about. So he gives a setup. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who we first read about last week, remember that we went through the genealogy, the family story of Jesus, and the mess, and the obscurity, and the marginalization, but we, we found that Jesus's parents were named, was named Mary, his mother, and then she was pledged to Joseph, but Matthew makes it clear that Joseph was not the father. So there's this setup. There's this young woman named Mary, Mary is probably 14 years old. She might have been 15 or 16. She might have been 13. But I think 14 is kind of the average age people go with. Joseph, probably not that much older. Uh, You know, some of these things, like we've experienced so much change so rapidly in our culture in the last 100 years, uh, or really, if you want to stretch it out, the last 200 years. But for thousands and thousands of years, human culture was fairly the same. You know, how did you marry somebody? Well, you were, your parents arranged it. It still takes place all over the world like that. Arranged marriages are still a common thing. In fact, I've, I've uh, read interviews and, and seen uh, videos where people who have experienced it actually speak well of it, which shocked me. But that was the deal. Mary is pledged to Joseph. And we're told in another gospel that they were actually betrothed. And we don't have a concept like betrothal. Uh, we have you're, you're dating, and then you're engaged, and then you're married. And all engagement means is we're going to get married. We've, we've decided that we are going to get married. But, but you could still break it off. There's no legal agreement. Uh, there's, no, there's no binding agreement. You know, you could get out of that thing up until you say, I do. So we have married and not married. That's how we do it. We have you're dating you're engaged, you're married. They had betrothed. So a betrothal actually had its own ceremony, and there was a whole thing around it, and it was basically like these two are married, but not married. And I'm not going to try to go through another culture's deal. That's just how they did it. But the idea was that they were absolutely going to get married, that if somebody, uh, If one of the two parties fooled around, it would be considered equal to adultery in a marriage relationship. And yet they did not live together. They they did not have that sort of marital intimacy. Uh, It was this weird thing between engaged and married that we just don't have. But that's where they were. That's the setup. And it says that Mary was found to be pregnant. Now you got to fill in the gaps a little bit. I'm thankful that we have four gospel accounts. I read a lot of history. And I appreciate getting different perspectives from different historians. Why are there four Gospels instead of just one? Well, they all agree, and yet they all give us a bigger, clearer picture of the life of Jesus. You know, I have read historical accounts that take place over like a three-day period, and then I've read historical accounts where that three-day period is like half a chapter. And, and both of those types of histories are going to give you very different perspectives. They're both true, they're both accurate, but they give you bar- very different perspectives. Luke's gospel, 
tells us that Mary, pretty, pretty soon after she was betrothed to Joseph, finds out that she is pregnant. And God tells her, you know, I'm going, you're going to be pregnant. The Holy Spirit is going to uh, miraculously conceive a child within you. And so she goes down to visit her cousin who, Elizabeth, who is also pregnant miraculously, not quite as miraculously because there was a husband involved in this case, but miraculously, and she was pregnant with John the Baptist, and after about six months, she comes home. So it says that she was found to be pregnant. It means she was showing. Like sometimes you just know, right? And so uh, she's showing. It, it's, it's like this, oh my goodness. And so Joseph says, what do, what do I want to do about this? Because look at it from Joseph's perspective. See, we know that everything's on the up and up. We know that Mary didn't cheat on him. We know that Mary didn't fool around. We know that what was going on was from God, but he didn't. If you're in his perspective, what's going on? This girl that he probably didn't know very well, just knowing the customs of the day, this girl that he probably didn't know very well, if at all, who is supposed to be his wife, has fooled around with somebody else. How would you feel? It's really understandable that he's like, I'm going to get rid of this. This is going to end. I am going to move on. It's totally understandable. It says that he was faithful to the law. So Joseph was a godly man, a righteous man. He wanted to do what was right. He wanted to live in the righteousness of God. He wanted to live in the holy truth of God. And yet it says he was, wanted to be faithful to the law, but he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had it in mind to divorce her quietly. You can do the right thing the wrong way. You can do the right thing the wrong way. A lot of times in the church, we talk about how you can do the wrong thing, maybe with good intentions. You know, you do the wrong thing for the right, with, with right reasons, but it's still the wrong thing. But you can do the right thing the wrong way. And certainly throughout the history of the church, whether it's the actual church of Jesus, the people of God, or whether it's an institution called the church that might not be the same thing, we have history of people doing the right thing, the biblical thing, and yet it doesn't seem like they did it the right way. And I don't have time to get into all of the things, but there's example after example after example in history of people who have done the right thing the wrong way. Joseph wanted to do the right thing, but he wanted to do it in a godly, loving, charitable way. He didn't want to publicly shame her. He didn't want to make her life worse. He just said, I want to live the, the way that I think God wants me to live. And it doesn't seem like Mary's living on that same path. So I'm going to end things, but I'm not going to wreck her. I'm just going to go the way that I think God needs me to go. So he's got good intentions, and he's trying to do this the most charitable, gracious, loving way possible. That's one of the challenges the big idea this morning is real obedience. One of the challenges for people who are trying to follow Jesus, people who are trying to live as true Christian disciples of Christ, 
How do we do the right thing the right way? Because we know in big picture terms, like what God has said is right and what God has said is wrong. But there has been such dramatic shifts in society so quickly that one of the challenges followers of Jesus find is how do we live the way God wants us to, but do it in the way that is appropriate for the moment we're in? And, and sometimes the wisdom of previous generations isn't helpful. It, it isn't. I, I have read the writings of well-known preachers and unknown uh, just everyday Christians from previous eras, and I'm trying to understand how they lived, and yet it seems like it's unhelpful because if they're writing in like 1800s Victorian England, or if they're writing in um, you know, a primarily Christian context in Germany or in America, you know, back in the day. I'm not saying America was a Christian nation. I'm just saying like these, these things where Christian ideas were culturally accepted and at least publicly professed, if, if not actually followed. And so, so reading from them, they, they just, they're not writing to our issues. And so we're trying to navigate, okay, how do we live through this change? Things have changed so much uh, you know, I went back the uh, the last episodes of The West Wing. It's a you know famous show, famous TV show, and I've got all the DVDs because um, I just <laughs> I bought them before Blu-ray. So it says you know I've got them. They're out. The show's been off forever, but we were rewatching them uh, during pandemic. You know, and it struck me that the debates that they were having because it's a show about culture and politics. The debates that they were having 15 years ago was when the show went off the air. 20 years ago when the show first came on the air. Those are all settled. The debates that they were having, we've moved on. The debates that they were having were between sort of what was a nominally Judeo-Christian context and a nominally secularist context. We've moved on from that. So how do we do the right thing the right way? Joseph was just trying his best to figure it out. And I have a lot of sympathy for him in this moment. I, I can't speak to, because I'm not speaking to any one issue, but I know this. The same God, the Holy Spirit, that gave wisdom to Solomon, that gave insight to the prophets, that gave the gospel to the apostles is at work in the lives of you and me and any Christian living today. And as a church family, we can gather together and pray together and reason together and talk together and study God's word together. And as we navigate the challenges that we face living in a post-Christian culture, we can figure out, hey, it's not just how do we do the right thing, but how do we do it the right way? So that's kind of the setup that we're in. He's got it in mind. He's decided. You can kind of imagine him sitting there. Maybe he's sitting at night before he goes to bed, and he's just overwhelmed with all of these things he's got to process, and he finally comes to a decision, and with peace in his heart, he's ready for bed. Now, it doesn't say whether he had a vision or whether the angel actually appeared to him while he was awake. We're not told. But the angel appears to him and says, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Why would the angel say that? Don't be afraid. Do you think he was afraid that like Mary was going to kill him? Do you think he was afraid that like Mary was going to like hurt his feelings or something? Like why does he say, why does the angel say do not be afraid? 
Can I tell you this? I believe that real obedience involves a certain amount of fear. It does. Real obedience involves a certain amount of fear. Maybe we're afraid from what the world around us will say to our obedience. Maybe we are afraid of what the church culture around us will say to our obedience. Obedience often deals with a certain amount of fear. Let me give you some examples here. Something that's kind of close to home to Joseph and Mary's situation. I had friends, I think I've spoken about this before, but I had friends who ran a crisis pregnancy home. So they had a home and it had, you know, they lived there with their two kids, but they also had a bunch of rooms set up. And if there was a crisis pregnancy situation, basically um, the mom was in an abusive situation, maybe an abusive boyfriend, abusive parents. Um, sometimes, you know, there was uh, some, some drugs or something. They just needed to get, they didn't need to go to rehab, but they just needed to get away so that they could have the, the baby in a healthy and safe place. There were a bunch of different stories and situations. And so they would come to this house that the, these friends of mine ran. And they were telling me about one girl that they had living with them. And I didn't know her. They weren't like divulging secrets, right? But, but uh, they were just talking about what was going on. I, I didn't live in the same city, but I just was hearing what was going on with them. And they were saying how this girl had grown up in a very, very legalistic, um, conservative, traditionalist kind of church. You know the type of church the home of the old-time religion, you know what I mean. And so her and her boyfriend, age 16 or 17, had been sleeping together, and they got pregnant, and they made them get up in front of the entire church and repent. That church had no business knowing their business, right? Like, like I, I believe in confessing our sins. I believe that sex outside of marriage is a sin but does the whole church need to know about it? No. One of the things that I really appreciated in the, in the church where I, I did a pastoral internship, uh, and Angie was on staff there for many years, was they'd circle the wagons and they would have confession to who needed confession. And what I mean by that is this. Some churches circle the wagons and they cover up sin so that nobody knows and oh, we don't want anybody to look bad. And some churches like let out all the dirty laundry. But what I appreciated about this church that we were at was there were a couple of things that because I was on staff, I knew about. But then there were things that I knew something was going on, but it was kind of like, even the pastors don't have to know about this. Like, you know, this pastor knows what's going on. He's dealing with it along with these other people. But you know what? I'm over here doing youth ministry. I don't need to know about it. I knew something was up. I knew I should pray for those people, but I didn't need to know what was going on. And then in other cases, because of being on staff, I did need to know about it. I did know what was going on. And, and there was a covering where it was like, you know what? We don't need to publicly shame anyone. I'm so thankful for that. So can you imagine if you grew up in that kind of Christian church culture that just wants to publicly shame everybody? And you decide to be the shield for them. That's what Joseph's doing. You decide to be the covering for them. And then you take the hits. I could see why he'd be afraid to take her in. 
Because all of a sudden, if he divorces her, everybody says, oh, poor Joseph, did you hear what happened to him? Yeah, that Mary fooled around and cheated on him and you know, committed adultery and the whole thing. He brings her in. Now the rumor is, oh, he fooled around with her. He's the father. Or, you know, he's so weak. And I'm, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but I'm just acknowledging the culture they would have been in. He's so weak as a man that he took her in because he's, he's afraid of being alone or whatever. We can't find anybody better. And, uh, you know, he doesn't know what she's up to at night because he's just, you know, he's, a, he's a not, not, not man enough for her. You know, the whole thing. You could just see why there would be fear. And you can see where following God would lead to fear. God, God's given this principle of generosity to Christians. And yet we say, what happens if I give my whole life to Jesus? What happens if I, if I give the first fruits of my income to God? Will I have enough money left over? What happens if I surrender myself to Jesus and Jesus calls me to go be a missionary in another country? Am I going to have to go somewhere? Am I going to have to do something? That's why the angel says, don't be afraid. It makes sense. Don't be afraid. Why? Because this is from God. Here's the thing I've learned, and it's, it's been a hard-learned lesson. If it's from God, it's good, and it's worth it. If it's from God, whatever the cost is, is far outweighed by whatever comes from it. He's not saying don't be afraid because, you know, it won't be that bad. Don't be afraid, you know, because everybody goes through stuff. He's saying don't be afraid, Joseph, because this is from God. And if it's from God, then it is worth it. Why? Because her son will save his people. Now, if you're Joseph, you think, well, that makes sense. We've been waiting for the Messiah. We've been occupied by the Romans. We are oppressed we are, we are held down. We are conquered. We need deliverance. We need deliverance. But then the angel gives a qualifier. Save his people from the Romans? No, from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. So this is the message that God through the angel gives to Joseph. Joseph, don't be afraid. This is from God. And this child will save his people from their sins. Matthew says that this fulfills Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. So the implications of all this is, Joseph, hey, remember that word of the prophet Isaiah that a virgin will conceive and bear a son? This is it. This is it. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. What's the point of biblical prophecy? I was having a conversation with a brother in the church this week about that. You know, we were talking about prophecy and the end times and all this stuff. And what's the point of biblical prophecy? In a previous generation of the church, they saw no point in it. 
there's a guy named Charles Spurgeon who was the most well-known preacher of the 1800s. You know, think of Rick Warren or Joel Olstein or uh, Andy Stanley or, or T.D. Jakes, these kind of very well-known preachers. Spurgeon was that guy. And he's totally useless on anything to do with prophecy because I've, I've read his writings and he said, you know, I just don't care. I don't think it's important. And then we flash forward to like, you know, the 70s and 80s and 90s and who were the most popular Bible teachers? Chuck Swindoll, Jack Hayford, John MacArthur, Chuck Smith, Greg Laurie. And you can look, these were the people that were the most popular, most influential, Tim LaHaye, so on and so on and so on. And they cared a lot about prophecy. But it was like, I grew up in this type of church, so it was like freak everybody out kind of prophecy or uh, fill out your, your end times bingo kind of prophecy. What's the point of prophecy? Sometimes it's God just saying, hey, you think I'm not moving? I've got a plan. In this case, though, it's about confirming the work of God. When the moment comes, it's God saying, hey, I have told you that this was going to happen, so step forward in it. Isaiah is saying, hey, the implication, or Matthew saying the implication of this is Isaiah and his prophecy. Don't be afraid, Joseph, because God told you ahead of time that it was going to happen. But Joseph has a role to play directly in this prophecy. We think prophecy, God said it, and so, okay, it's just going to happen. Like, we don't really have to worry about it. But all of us have a role to play in living out the word of God. Joseph's role is very specific. Joseph, you have a role to play. Take Mary as your wife and then do not touch her. Take Mary as your wife and fulfill all of your responsibilities toward her to, you know, support her, uh, to, to protect her, uh, to, you know, be her partner in life, do all of the things that you are responsible for, but get none of the benefits. And by the benefits, yes, I do mean the benefits. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do, took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to the son. And he gave him the name Jesus. There was a role that Joseph had to play in this prophecy, and it was both immediate obedience and longer-term obedience. The big idea this morning is what is real obedience look like? Can I tell you that sometimes it's a, a momentary thing, like an immediate thing. I have to do this thing right here, right now. And sometimes it's a longer, drawn-out thing. Sometimes it's both. In that moment, to respond to God in obedience, Joseph had to go and take Mary as his wife. And there was a whole thing where the bride would basically not know when the groom was going to show up and say, all right, it's time. And so Joseph goes out. I think he went out the next day, personally. He went out and said, it's time. Let's get this thing going. And he got married to her and he took her to his house to be his wife. That's the immediate short-term obedience. And I think there is a place for this. When we, when we became Christians, those of us who are, who are followers of Jesus, when we became Christians, we had an immediate act of obedience. We said, Jesus, I want you. 
Jesus, I surrender to you. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I follow you. Jesus, I believe in you. Whatever words you said, whatever way that you understood it, you knew that that was a moment of surrender. And in that immediate obedience, you gave your life to Jesus. But then since then, we've been working to live in long-term obedience to God. Jesus, I don't just believe in you in that moment, but I want to follow you. And you've been following Jesus maybe for a few months, a few years, maybe a few decades. But we've been living in longer-term obedience. In that moment, Joseph was obedient to God, and he took Mary as his wife. In that moment, we are obedient to God when we say yes to him, when we say no to sin, when we say yes to going where God wants us to go and no to where God says don't go there. And we say, yep, no. There are moments of obedience. There are moments where we change the channel, where we close the laptop, where we throw our phone to the other side of the room. There are moments where we pour something down the drain. There are moments of obedience. There are moments where we write where we, well, we, I was going to say write the check, but right, we just send the cash app, where we do the thing that we're supposed to do. And then there's longer term obedience. Because they were alone together. They were a married couple. I don't, I don't mean to be flippant or graphic. I think sometimes we have this thing around Jesus's family where we like, think that they like, didn't fart or something. Yeah, I just said fart, deal with it. But let's, let's be really honest about this. They were married. They lived together. I'm going to guarantee you that he saw her naked and he didn't touch her because the virgin was to conceive and bear a son. And so for this prophecy to be fulfilled, Joseph had to live in immediate and long-term obedience. Maybe God's spoken a word to your life. I believe in prophecy to this day. Has God spoken something into your life? And you might think it's going to happen someday because God spoke it to me. Maybe. But I can't guarantee that if, if you're not living in obedience, if you're not abiding in Christ, if you're not centering your life around the lordship of Jesus over your world. Joseph had a response, a direct role to play in this prophetic word, and that was a role of obedience to God. In this moment, I will take Mary as my wife, and I will be as responsible towards her as I can be. I will give myself, but I won't take. And in that, he helped he helped bring about the saving of the world. Did Joseph save the world? No. Did Mary save the world? No. Only Jesus saves. But they had an immense part and a massive part in your salvation and my salvation. And it was because in that moment he was obedient and over the long term he was obedient to God. What does it take to live in real obedience? Well, first of all, did you notice there was a divine element going on here? If I'm going to live in obedience, I have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. I will not be able to stand, and neither will you, if God the Holy Spirit is not working in us. 
And over the long term, they were together. They were a team. And I personally believe that I will not be able to stand, and neither will you, in long-term obedience if I'm not part of the team, Team Jesus, that is the church of God. Does that mean that you have to come? Oh, you know what? I'm watching online. I got to really get on being part of Faith on Hill. No, this isn't about one church. It's about Team Jesus and being connected with each other so that we can have the strength in numbers to stand in long-term obedience. Real obedience sometimes is a moment, a moment of crisis, a moment of decision. And sometimes real obedience is just a faithful, steady living for God over a long period of time. And both are important. Both are valid. Both can change the world. Because you don't know what your obedience will do. I don't think that Joseph fully understood what his obedience would do. But it saved my life. And it can save the lives of every person around us. All who would turn and place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. He saved us from sin. He saved us from death. He's given us the hope of eternal life. And that same hope is available to any and all who would call on the name of Jesus, believe in their hearts, and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if that's you, wherever you are right now, God hears you. But you have to be obedient to call out to him. Let's pray together. I want to close this morning by reading from the book of Romans, chapter 12, where it says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep yourself spiritually fervent, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willingly associated with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's use these verses as our guide to prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. And we thank you that you have put your name, the name of Jesus, onto our souls and our spirits, and you have called us your own. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in that devotion to one another, in that joy of serving you, in that fervency of prayer. Lord, I don't know who the enemies are that come to other people's heads. I know who comes to my head. And I admit that many who I would say have been an enemy to me are not outside, but they're inside the church. That's horrible. But I pray that you would heal that, remove that, start in my heart. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to be connected with those of low situation and not be conceited.
Thank you for the work that uh, the Toy and Joy program does to connect with uh, sometimes people just getting out of jail a day or two before. Lord, I ask that you would help us to love and honor one another as a church family in the days that we live in, because they are evil, but we need your goodness. And whatever those verses are that resonated with you, pause this. Pray over them. Ask God to work in your life. Ask God to show himself to you. I know he hears our prayers. And if you've responded, if you know that that God's spoken to you and you need Jesus and you want to become a Christian, you can email me, Adam, at faithonhill.com. I'd love to talk with you more. If you know that you need to make that immediate decision to live in obedience, same email. It's totally confidential. I'd love to hear from you. God bless you. We'll see you next week as we continue reading through the Christmas story and the Gospel of Matthew of how God became a man and came to earth in the form of a lowly baby from an unknown family to save the world from our sins. We'll see you next week, and we'll see you in the small groups as we meet together this week. God bless you.